Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So it looks like we may be on the edge of war in Ukraine, whether it's going to be all out, all over Ukraine, or whether they're going to try and take another bite. The Russians are going to try and take another bite, this time out of the Donbass region, the eastern Ukraine, or whether they're just going to back down. Uh, we don't know. But uh, meanwhile, the Chinese are saber rattling about Taiwan and uh, they've got their, their, you know, more and more military incursions and all these kind of things. What happens to the economy if war, a significant war breaks out? I mean, we've all lived through, or many of us have lived through uh, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, even the Vietnam War. But none of us, uh, or very few of us alive today, have lived through an actual world war, a major conflict, a major international conflict that has the, the potential to bring down large parts of the international economic order. What would that look like? Let's ask Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, including most recently, The Sickness Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two Fs dot com, and his Twitter handle is profwolf with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. You heard my setup. Uh, what say you? Well, I think it's a very, very important point. Uh, the United States has been at war uh, pretty much on and off most of my life. But the only ones that are memories that I have even a little bit of understanding were wars like Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. And in virtually every case, we're talking about a war between David and Goliath. Uh, where the United States is Goliath, and all these countries uh, usually rank among the poorest of the poor uh, and close to the very poorest. They have little or no military capability, etc., etc., etc. A war which is unthinkable to me uh, between the United States and either Russia or China, who are more closely allied now than they have been probably ever in their history. A war like that is a completely new and different element. I won't even go to the question of nuclear weapons, which both sides would then have in enormous number, but I would leave it just to consider uh, the world energy system. A crucial role is played by Russia 
the price of oil and gas would completely go crazy in the event that Russia were in any way uh, involved in a war that it had to take extreme steps uh, to protect itself, to fight the war, and to so on. The Chinese, for their part, uh, control very important rare earths without which all kinds of production cannot happen. Uh, the world, which is now suffering the problems of insufficient chips, uh, computer chips for everything from automobiles to smartphones, would discover that between China and its offshore island, Taiwan, that's where most of the chips in the world are made. And that would destroy the automobile industry. China ships a great deal. If you think we have supply chain problems now, the war would disrupt them on a scale that would throw the United States back to rely on itself. And when? After we've just come off 50 years of moving the production of more and more of the basics we rely on out of the country and to other parts of the world that are war would disrupt our relationships too. So many people around the world, I'm one of them, but many, many others, see most of this stuff around Taiwan and Ukraine as a kind of made-for-TV movie politics, uh, made to look tough or strong for each of the leaders involved and their, the, the playing to their mass bases. But a serious risk of a global war now over that? Ukraine, all due respect, Taiwan, all due respect, that would be so destructive of so many countries and people that even those who live in the world of the made-for-TV movie would have to have at least some skepticism. Well, here we are 100 years after World War One, which was started by the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and you still have people debating why did World War One start? Obviously, all the, inter all the interconnections and alliances and, 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 and things like that, but um, what, what would be the impact on the average, you know, I get it, you know, we, we lose our chips or the, the price of computers goes through the roof. Uh, the price of oil goes through the roof. Inflation starts becoming serious. How how is the average American family would be you know would be affected by something like another world war? Well, let me give you a couple of the lines that would have to be understood. The United States has been running deficits uh, in world trade, importing way more than it exports for a long time. That money comes back, all that money we send abroad to buy the imports, comes back as loans to the United States government. One of the most important lenders to the United States government, the People's Republic of China. In any kind of warfare, that would come to a crashing halt. And we're talking trillions of dollars. What are the Chinese going to do with the trillions owed to them? They're certainly not going to lend us anymore. And if the United States defaults, what will every other country in the world that holds dollars in, the, in lending them to the United States government uh, think about that and do in reaction? The, the government might suddenly be unable to borrow anything like the money it had before. What will it do? Stop providing public services? 
taxes, tax the American people more to compensate for what it can't get from lenders abroad, etc., etc., at a time when all of those other countries that used to lend to the United States will be busy using that money to pay the inflated price for oil, for gas, for food, which comes now longer and longer distances across the world that will be compromised. I mean, your question is the right one, but the answer is on so many levels, almost all of which are going to be painful, hurtful, damaging to standards of living, uh, it kind of blows the mind that there are people so poorly informed about what a world economy is that they can imagine these warfares as if they were manageable, controllable. And maybe you're right, Tom, to begin with uh, reminding us about wars with Iraq and Afghanistan, because those countries are so poor and so far away and such minor players in the world economy that a war between the U.S. and them, besides being a foregone conclusion militarily, it, it can be kind of ignored. But if you're up against Russia and China, you are in a completely different universe. And not to understand that is perhaps the most dangerous prelude to making a a catastrophic mistake. You know, Andrew, or, or, uh, uh, Arnold Toynbee is said to have said, there's a debate over whether this is an actual quote from him, but he's often quoted as having said, when the man, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. And, you know, in other words, the loss of institutional memory. There are very few Americans today who, who remember you know, what happened during World War II, the, the, the rationing of butter, the rationing of gasoline, the unavailable, uh, unavailability of consumer products, the, uh, you know, the, the economic price, the lifestyle price that Americans paid. Do you think that that uh, amnesia, as it were, is playing a role in this? And, and if so, how would we wake up Americans to the dangers that we're facing as we're as we're playing around with wars that are a hell of a lot more consequential than going after a country that's got a two trillion dollar GDP like Afghanistan did. Right. No, it's a it's a matter of education. I, I wish I could say something wonderfully uh, brilliant that would solve this problem. But having conversations like this where people are sobered up about what is actually being done. Uh, in terms of taking a risk here, I cannot imagine, and I have a lot of criticisms of Joe Biden, to say the least, but I cannot imagine that he and the people around him don't understand that this might be good for television and good for his base, but this is not a serious proposition because it is simply too terrible to contemplate. Yeah, which is probably why he's saying we're not sending troops in, but we'll see. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. We'll be right back. Sea level rise by 2050, one foot? Seriously? What's this going to do to America? Johan Hari is going to drop by. He's got a new book out called Stolen Focus, Why We Can't Pay Attention. And perhaps more importantly, the subtitle, How to Think Deeply Again. We're going to get into that with a, a half-hour deep dive. 
By the way, geeky science, our uh, wake-up call here. This is uh, on sea level rise. Ocean levels along the U.S. coastline are projected to rise by an average of 10 to 12 inches over the next three decades. This is a new report that was released. This didn't come from some, you know, environmental group. It came from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in conjunction with several other federal agencies. They have looked at what's going on. They're looking at satellites from outer space. They're looking at sea level rises all around the world. They're saying this is primarily driven by burning fossil fuels, as Louis DeJoy wants to buy, you know, 90% new fossil fuel-driven vehicles for the post office. But that's what's going on. Michael in Cleveland, Georgia. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Uh, trucker mess. Well, it bothers me that these are individuals without any government, except maybe the Russian government, without any government control, private individuals that are grifters can kick off chaos like this and jam up our supply systems in a time of war. All this is a... a I don't know if it's treason. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think it's bad it's management sure, of social sure, media. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of this was was done on social media, but, but probably mostly Facebook, just because they're the biggest. But you know, uh, there are other social media sites for for right wingers that are you know, Parler and Telegram and all this kind of stuff that are becoming very popular. And you know, the social media companies are are inviting people into the space that they own. And those people are committing crimes, and the social media people are saying, hey, we don't have to do anything about this. We've got protection from Section 230. Well, social media may not have to, but it's a national security issue when you're jamming up our borders. I agree. And keeping the chips from our equipment and shutting yep. our plants down when we need to be in wartime footing. Yeah, it's cost us a couple billion dollars, too, so far. I can't imagine why our government ain't stepped up to the plate. If they did, if they can take the, the air traffic controllers out, why can't they go put somebody in them rigs and start moving our product? Well, because it was happening on the Canada side. This was all happening on we the Canada side of the border. NDAA. We got a National Defense Authorization Act. We can work together. We don't have to hear that. Yeah, but I, I don't think that uh, Trudeau and Biden want to be doing joint military operations on the U.S.-Canadian border right now. I, I, I think the Canadians are dealing with it pretty well, Michael. I mean, it took them, took them some time. But, you know, in Canada, this is being referred to as the trucker tantrum. And people are ridiculing these folks. I mean, the Canadians are just, they were over it a long time ago. They're sick of it. Stuart in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Stuart, what's up? Good day, sir. Hey. I was commenting about your you know, discussion about, you know, a potential going into World War III or right. into a world war, you know, and your... Or at least a conflict with a major power that's not Afghanistan or Vietnam. Correct. And the professor I was getting was like, he was fearful of us doing this because, oh, we can't make chips now. Well, we used to make chips in this country. We invented them. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and so to me, to me, hearing people say this, why not understand, yes, we can go back to it. Why did we ship it overseas to China and places like that? Because they have slave labor and they can make it dirt cheap, you know. Going back with the fuel and gas, we can open up our drilling fields and start drilling to produce more oil in case of something like this. Do I want to see us go into a world war with China or a Russia potential? No, sir. But 
I also do not think we should let them run roughshod over us and saying, well, if you do this, you you can't do this, you know, America. No, I agree. When when bullies threaten you, you don't back down. Correct. And, you know, so I'm not in favor of going into fighting. And you look at the Republicans who are saying Biden was correct. They're not sending any troops into Ukraine because we can't because that would lead into a potential going well, into Well, that's not war. the reason. We're not sending troops into Ukraine because we don't have a bilateral or multilateral defense treaty with them, and they're not a member of NATO or the EU. So there's no legal right. justification for it. Right. But, I mean, to get our people out that are there, yeah. that's what I meant by that. You know, oh, now, if they said, would you, you know, if they would come in, you know, if they invited us in, that's a little different, but still the same. It still leads to that potential of what's going on. Sir, I know I got the call for music. You have yourself a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks a lot. Yeah, my opinion on this is, is pretty straightforward. If, if Putin does what it looks like he's trying to do, that is take all of Ukraine, I think he's going to get a huge bloody nose. And, you know, it's not going to be a good thing for Russia. On the other hand, if he, if he tries to chew off a piece of the Donbass, you know, that, I think, is a higher probability. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And the question then is, you know, is the international community going to say, oh, you just took, you know, a 50 square mile, you know, a 50 mile strip. How are we going to react? Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And I would add, I ran out of time there, I would add if that's what they try to do is just take part, you know, the, the eastern part of Ukraine, I think that the response should be just as vigorous and, you know, which, although that may provoke them to say, well, what the hell, let's just go for the whole thing. It's, it's one of these really, really tough situations when you're dealing with, with somebody who apparently is not behaving like a rational actor. Now, it may be that this is all a manipulating or a uh, negotiating strategy on Putin's part. I don't know. But it's not good. I don't like it. It's not a good thing. It shouldn't be happening. Henry in Las Vegas. Hey, Henry, what's on your mind today? Yes, sir. I was 13 years old when World War II ended, in living in occupied Holland, where we went for the last nine months of a five-year-long occupation. The last nine months were just like a cave existence. No gas for cooking, no electricity, no fuel to heat the homes. 300 calories a day for food. 
No gasoline to bring the dead to the cemeteries. And I saw dead people laying in the streets, died from hunger. It, I have no time to tell you everything. But Stephen Ambrose, a famous American historian, he said, how can anybody still, if, Amer- if Americans ask, how can anyone still remember what happened 60, 70 years ago? Let me tell you, all of you, one thing. For those who lived through it, it is like yesterday. Yeah. I gave a class to a high school, was scheduled for one hour, and I was standing there without any notes, and I was able to talk for two hours long, and then the kids were still asking questions. At the, and the class was over four days later, I got a thank you note and please come back. Yeah. It is it's unbelievable. And, and as I say, my memory is my, I have a photographic memory. But I, whatever I told them, I could see coming up in front of my eyes like a film. And even today, from time to, there is a day going by that I don't go back with memories that are just involuntarily are coming up. Yeah, that's called. It's, it, it, it's unbelievable. It's, it's called, unbelievable. It's called PTSD. The people here in this country have absolutely no idea what it was like. Yeah. Yeah, the last generation of Americans who understood what war on this continent would be like were the Civil War veterans. And there was a yeah. substantial peace movement that came out after the Civil War. Yeah. Henry, thank yeah. you for sharing that with us. That's uh, yeah. sobering, shall we say. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Pat in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Pat, you wanted to talk about the consequences of war? Yeah, I do. I went to school in London before World War II. Oh, my. So, 88. Mm-hmm. And I've just written a book called Window on the World. And it tells the story of how we managed as a family, how we survived World War II, all the things we had to do, things we had to eat. And it's my life story. But I think Americans really need to know what world war means to every person all the time. Yeah. And your story just about diet of people really runs true with me because we, we, I grew up virtually vegetarian. We didn't have any meat in World War II. The rationing was four ounces of meat a week. <laughs> and You're probably healthier because of it. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, here I'm, I'm at 88. This is my fifth book in two years. Wow, good on you, and, Pat. Great. And I think people will be interested because it it does detail how you can live through a war mm-hmm. and how we did. And is it available? The, a, forgive my interruption. Is it available on Amazon or other places like that? It'll be on Amazon. I hope in a few weeks. Yes. And the title is the Window on the World by Pat Room. Okay, cool. I'll look for it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I interrupted you. You were saying. Well, I was saying that I detail how it feels to be an immigrant. It wasn't easy for me. To Mm. to immigrate to the U.S. was very difficult. And I think people need to know that people don't do this lightly. It's a a very traumatic event for for many reasons. But then also I've got a lot of the things, my reaction to arriving in Seattle. Um, I was told that, uh, you know, the U.S. was a land of opportunity and and freedom. I found the opposite. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I detail why I felt the opposite and uh, how difficult it was to to assimilate. And even now, I we uh, I, I have you know, I've been here sixty years, but uh, I'm in a group that discusses uh, the current affairs. I'm trying to get through to them that 
in, in where I grew up, you could agree to disagree. And the, the problems of Americans that say, if, well, he thinks that's all, then I'm not going to be friends with him anymore. I can't talk to him because he doesn't believe with me. And that's not true. Yeah. You, you, you should agree to disagree and you should say, um, you know, I, <laughs> tell me why you feel that way. <laughs> right, which goes back and, to seeing the essential humanity in everybody. Well, yeah, and uh, I, I, I mean, it's not a pro-U.S. book, but it does try, I hope, to throw some light onto people of, of how they behave and is this reasonable. And uh, Because I was bombed for six years, and I escaped death twice uh, by 100 yards. And um, so you look back at it and you say, I, I mean, please don't send me the... Uh, the, the, the airplanes over, overhead uh, are painful to me. The, the Blue Angels are a misery. I want to be out of town. Right. But uh, so people should. I think people realize what war does to for your whole life. Yeah, it it, it is a, a scar that never goes away. Pat, thank you for sharing that story, and I'll look for your book. Thank you, John in Tampa, Florida. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, you were talking about the Vietnam War not being a major war. Well, no, no. My, really my, hang on just a second. What I was saying about Vietnam was we went to war with a country that did not have the ability to economically cripple us. Not economically, but I mean, I was there. when We invaded Cambodia. We had a secret war in Laos. We were bombing the hell out of North Vietnam. Those countries share a border with China. I'm surprised that Chinese did not intervene in that war. China was I mean, broke at that time. Yeah, they China had a, had a famine in the 60s where, where I think it was 15 million people died of famine. Yeah, they still had a huge army, though, of, of so-called volunteers. I mean, they, you know, they intervened in Korea, I mean, and we weren't even that close to, the, to their border, as in Laos, where we were carrying on the secret war and bombing the hell out of North Vietnam. I mean, if China was bombing Mexico along our border, we would have intervened in 30 seconds. Yeah. So I just, I feel like, you know, Vietnam veterans have got such a bad rap over the years. Oh, I didn't mean it that way anyway, John. I have so much respect that. for people who, who went to Vietnam, particularly knowing, especially in the later years, that we had been lied into that war. You know, we have to honor our Vietnam veterans. My point was not that that war was not a terrible war, a brutal war, a war that Richard Nixon extended starting in 1968, yeah. committing treason to extend. My point was that if we go to war with China or Russia, they both have the ability to manipulate the world economy in a way that will affect every single American family immediately. Vietnam did not have that power. Iraq did not have that power. Afghanistan didn't have that power. And back in 1951, North Korea didn't have that power. So we, there's not a person living or very few people still alive, you know, from the World War II generation, from the, from the 40s, who remember what it was like to, to go into a war in a way that fundamentally alters the American economy. We lost 56,000 people, which is a horror. We pissed away, you know, in today's dollars, hundreds of billions, probably trillions of dollars in that war. We lost international prestige. We, we committed a mass murder. We murdered over two million South Vietnamese, or Vietnamese in general, for no good reason. We invaded a sovereign country, two of them, Cambodia and Laos, without being invited. All those things are absolutely true. But none of it had a direct impact on, you know, your average American family. On, you know, and that was my point. 
a war yeah. with China or a war with Russia, we will all know about because things will happen. Your bank loans will be affected. Your price of food will be affected. Your price of fuel will be affected. The economy will go nuts. You will probably see, and this was not even possible back in the 60s, but yeah, and, and, and 70s, you will probably see also basically uh, online warfare. And you know all of those things together, I think, make this the possibility of this war a very different thing. That was my point, John. I mean yeah, to disrespect I you, and, and if I if that came across that way, I apologize to you personally. Oh, that's okay. I I get it. I mean, we just have Vietnam vets have gotten such a bad rap over the years. You know, when I got back, I was told by the VA people that oh, you really weren't in a war. You know, this that was just you know a little conflict. It wasn't to me and my buddies. Yeah, it wasn't well, a little conflict. Whoever told you that was full of full of crap. <laughs> that was that was terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. John, thank you, and thank you for your service to our country. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So have you noticed that you're a little distracted and have a hard time focusing and things just seem to be flying all over the place? And yeah, I totally get that, by the way. Let's do a deep dive over the next 30 minutes here with uh, our conversations with great minds today. Johan Hari is on the line with us. He's, he's the author of a new book called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Uh, Johan is a journalist. He's the author of three books. This is his most recent. He's also studied social and political science at King's College, Cambridge, and uh, graduated with a double first. StolenFocusBook.com is the website. Johan Hari 101 is his Twitter handle. Johan, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we talked. Tell us hey, what, what, what started you down this path of this book. Well, I noticed that with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, having deep conversations, watching long movies were getting more and more for me, like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I noticed this seemed to be happening to pretty much everyone I knew. I was particularly worried about the young people in my life who 
often seem to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, where nothing still or serious could touch them. So I decided to really deeply investigate, is something new happening to us? If it is, what is it and what can we do about it? And even very early on, I was really struck by some of the changes that have happened. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. The typical American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. So I wanted to understand how do we get our brains back? What's happening here? So I went on a really big journey over three years all over the world. I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne to Montreal and uh, not just cities that begin with the letter M. I don't know why I was so alliterative there. And, And I learned there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. They include some aspects of the tech we use, but they go from the food we eat to the sleep we don't get to the way we work. And I learned our attention didn't collapse. Our attention has been, but once you understand these 12 causes, we can begin together to get our brains back. Well, let's walk through them. I'm not sure how you would rank them, but uh, start at the beginning. Well, let's start with one that I think will be playing out in the lives of pretty much everyone listening. I went to interview Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. He's won some of the biggest neuroscience prizes. And I interviewed him at MIT. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time, but we've fallen collectively for a mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists all over the world have got people, not just teenagers, older people, into labs and set them up so they think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And when they do that, they always discover the same thing. You're not doing more than one thing at a time. You're juggling very quickly between your tasks. And it turns out that comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll be less creative. You'll remember much less of what you do. And when people hear that, when I first heard that from Professor Miller, I thought, okay, I get that, but surely this is quite a small effect. In fact, the the research on this is quite shocking. I'll just give you two quick examples. One study by Professor Larry Rosen found that if you receive eight text messages an hour, which doesn't sound like very much to most of us, that diminishes your brain power for the main thing you're trying to focus on by 30%. I would argue most of us are losing that 30% most of the time. Or think about a different study. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to do a small study backed by a wider body of evidence. And what the scientist did is he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do whatever your task is, you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, do whatever your task is, but you're going to have to also answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live these days. And at the end of it, they tested the IQ of both these groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 
10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you and me got stoned now, Tom, if we smoked cannabis together, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So being distracted is twice as bad in the short term for your intelligence. As being as, as getting stoned. You'd be better <laughs> off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time, than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and doing what most of us do, which is being constantly interrupted. To be clear, you'd be better off doing neither. Yeah. This is why Professor Miller says, we are living in a constant, a, sorry, a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of this constant uh, to, to try to get into what you describe in your book as the flow state. And I realize, you know, you're not the first to, to use that phrase, but, mm. um, you know, where uh, I no longer can even hear the music playing, you know, uh, uh, from the speaker over there. And I uh, and I'm not paying attention to anything except it always happens one area where I can consistently mm. get into a flow state and hold it for 15, 20, 30 minutes and produce some really good prose. But I've got to shut down everything. Basically, I've got to I've got to close things on my computer. I've got I've, I've already turned off all the notifications on my computer and on my phone for all the apps and everything um, in order to get there. But I, I do know that, like, you know, when I'm watching TV, I also, you know, I won't be checking my email. I'm looking at what's going on. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I'm doing those things is because there's a dopamine rush associated with them. It's like, oh, hey, look at that. Or, hey, look at my tweet just went viral or, hey, you know. I mean, there's literally a neurochemical reward system for being distracted. I think that's true. But I also think, and I think you and your listeners are particularly alert to this, there's a biological com contribution to this. But actually, there's a huge environmental contribution to this. At the moment, we're living in what Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts in children's attention problems, said to me we might want to call an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment that is undermining the ability of all of us to pay attention. And if you look at the 12 causes that I write about in my book, Stolen Focus, that are harming our attention, which include tech, some aspects of our tech, but go way beyond it. Mm -hmm. I think what you see is we need to tackle these problems at two levels. I think of them as defense and offense. So there are lots of things we can do as individuals to defend ourselves and our children. And a quarter of the book is about what's happening to our kids. And you've written brilliantly in your book, The Edison Gene, about some of these questions. And um, so part of it is about how we defend ourselves and our children. I go through dozens of things that we can do. I'm passionately in favor of them. I'll give you an example of one in a minute. Powder over us all day. And then they're leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. To which the logical response <laughs> is, I'll learn to meditate, but screw you, we need to stop you pouring this itching powder on me. Right. So what we need to do, I argue, is we need to take the defense steps, but we also need to go on the offense against the forces that are doing this to us, from the food industry, to the tech industry, to the way our employment is currently structured. And it requires a shift in consciousness, because when I started researching the book three years ago, I blamed myself for my own attention problems. I thought, oh, you're just weak, you're not strong enough. I actually realized these, this is being done to us. Stolen Focus, why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. StolenFocusBook.com. Johan Hari 101 is the Twitter handle. So, Johan, you suggest that a lot of this is external, that there are forces, corporations, businesses, industries that really want our attention all the time and have helped surround us with this pollution, shall we call it. Did that come about as a consequence of, I mean, was that more or less a natural evolutionary process? Companies figure out a new way to make money. Part of that making money is grabbing your attention. 
or was there something more malicious here? I mean, did they know, for example, like the tobacco industry back in the 50s, in the 30s, in fact, knew that their product caused cancer. The asbestos industry by the 40s knew for a fact that their product caused cancer. They continued to promote it. We only had to listen to their own words. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said, these are his words, we designed Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. That's what he said. And it's important to understand, we can have all the social media we currently have invade our attention if we want. Because at the moment, social media, and I learned this from interviewing people who've been at the very heart of the social media machine in Silicon Valley, people who were profoundly uncomfortable with what they'd done to us. I remember one of the people I interviewed, Dr. James Williams, who'd been at the heart of Google, was sickened by what he'd done and left. He, a tipping point for him was when he was at a tech conference and he was speaking to a whole group of tech designers who designed key aspects of the world in which we live, right? The things that are obsessing the kids of everyone listening now. And he said to that audience, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, put up your hand now. And not one person put up their hand. And the key to this is to understand both what's causing this damage to our attention and how we get out of it is to understand, which is one of the 12 factors I write about in Stolen Focus, is to understand the business model that is currently driving social media. So anyone listening, if you open TikTok now, if you open Facebook now and you start to scroll, those companies begin to make money about you, partly because you see ads, but more importantly, because they start to harvest all the information you share to build up a profile of you, to figure out how to invade your attention and keep you scrolling longer. This is their business model. It's very simple. Every second you and your kids scroll longer, they make more money. And every time you put your phone away, that revenue stream disappears. So all of their algorithms, all of their engineering genius is built around one thing, figuring out how do we make you scroll more? But we can deal with this. And there's an analogy, I think, in recent American history that you're going to remember, Tom, I remember. So when I was a kid, it was completely standard that people use leaded gasoline in their cars. And prior to that, um, it was completely standard that, um, you'll remember it, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. Mm -hmm. And it was discovered that lead profoundly damages people's brains and in particular damages children's ability to focus and pay attention. So what happened? A group of ordinary moms banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing a for-profit company to harm our children's brains? We should, and it's really important to notice what they didn't demand. They didn't say ban all gasoline. They didn't say ban all paint. They said ban the specific component in paint and the gasoline that is causing this harm. And we can do something similar with social media. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, we'll get into the details of that in, in 60 seconds here. Johan Hari is with us, journalist and author of three books, including his latest, Stolen Focus, uh, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. We'll be right back with Johan Hari. Stick around. Welcome back. We're talking with uh, Johan Hari, the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Johan, we were just talking about how the business model of social media is to grab our attention constantly so that they can make money off us. 
And you, you shared the analogy of uh, back in the 70s, we had lead in our gasoline and lead in our paints that we were painting our houses with. It was causing neurological damage to our children. Uh, groups of moms got together and they didn't demand an end to gasoline or paint. They said, get the lead out. What is the lead analog in social media? What is the, you know, I, I, I realize there are some people who think the solution is to delete your Facebook app off your phone, but, you know, assuming that you want to continue to live in the world where you can keep up with, you know, Uncle Ralph and, and the kids, um, uh, what is the lead in this? What is the, what is the dangerous component of social media that we really need to be attending to? So the hundreds of, I interviewed hundreds of experts for the book, and obviously I interviewed loads of people in Silicon Valley who'd been at the heart of this machine. I'll give you an example who I think articulated the beginning of the solution. Asa Raskin designed a key part of how the internet works. His dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And he said to me, look, if you want to understand how to deal with the tech component of this, of our attention crisis, the answer is very simple. You've got to ban the current business model. You've got to say that a business model premised upon surveilling you in order to figure out the weaknesses in your attention, hack them and sell your attention to the highest bidder is just inhuman. It's like lead in lead paint. We will not tolerate it. And lots of other people in Silicon Valley said this to me. And I, at first, I found it quite hard to understand. I kept saying, OK, so let's imagine we do that. What happens the next day when I open Facebook? Would it say, sorry, guys, you, we've gone fishing? They said, of course not. What would happen is they would have to move to a different business model. And everyone listening has some experience of that the two alternative models. One is subscription. We all know how HBO and Netflix work. We pay a small amount, we get access. Or alternatively, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had feces in the street, we got cholera. So we all pay to build and maintain the sewers. And everyone listening, you own the sewers along with the other citizens of your city, right? It may be that like we own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. And I would argue cholera for our politics. This is not just destroying our individual attention, but also our collective attention in ways we can explore if you like. But the key thing to understand is when you move to that different model, all the incentives change. In the current model, all the incentives are how do I figure out the weaknesses in, for the companies, social media companies, is how do I figure out the weaknesses in Tom's attention in order to keep him scrolling as long as possible? How do I figure out the weaknesses in Tom's kids' attention in order to keep them scrolling as long as possible? Because you are not the customer of these companies. You are the product. Your attention is the product they sell to the advertisers. So this technology is currently designed to maximally invade your attention. But if we move to a different business model, suddenly you become the customer. They have to say, what does Tom want? Oh, turns out Tom wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design Facebook and these other apps not to hack his attention, but to heal his attention. Tom wants to meet up with people in the real world. Let's design it to facilitate that, not to keep people interacting through depressing screens. But to get there, just like the lead industry was never going to do this on their own, right? We need to change our psychology. We need to stop just blaming ourselves. This attention crisis is happening to all of us. It's happening to me. It's happening to you. It's not your fault. And we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can reclaim them from the 12 forces that I write about in Stolen Focus that are stealing them. But to do that, we've got to raise our consciousness, first of all. We've got to stop seeing this as purely an individual flaw. And then we've got to defend ourselves and our children as much as we can 
And then we've got to take on these big forces, which include tech. That's what one we talked about. Let's think about the food industry, for example, if you like. There's so many more that we could look at. Mm-hmm. And we have about a minute and a half. Give me an example. Right. So the way we eat is currently profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention in all sorts of ways. I'll give you an example. The food we eat every day contains dyes and chemicals that act on our brains and our children's brains like drugs. There's a study in Britain that gave some kids water and some kids water laced with the synthetic dyes that are in our kids' food all the time, the stuff you get in the supermarket. It, they, the kids that drank the synthetic dyes were way more likely to become manic and hyperactive. Oh, that was Ben are, Feingold's work back in the 70s. Exactly. He did great work on this. There are these 12 factors in our environment, but we can deal with this. We don't have to tolerate our attention and our kids' attention being degraded and invaded in this way. We can reclaim our brains, but to do that, I argue we need to have an attention movement where we take on the forces that are doing this to us. Because at the moment, we're on a trajectory for this stuff to get more invasive. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is to your child than Facebook. We're on course for these things to become way more invasive. On the other, that's a race. On the one side, you've got these invasive forces. On the other side, you've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, we choose a world where we can think deeply, where we can read books, where our children can play outside. We choose a world where we can pay attention. If we fight for it, we'll get it. Yeah, amen. Johan Hari, the book is Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again, and it is brilliant. I strongly recommend it. Johan, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great Cheers, Tom. Really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Back at you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. The subtitle, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. This is from the introduction titled, Walking in Memphis. When he was nine years old, my godson developed a brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. He took to singing Jailhouse Rock at the top of his voice with all the low crooning and pelvis jiggling of the king himself. He didn't know this style had become a joke, so he offered it with all the heart-catching sincerity of a preteen who believes he's being cool. In the brief pauses before he started singing it all over again, he demanded to know everything, everything, everything about Elvis. And so I jabbered out the rough outline of that inspiring, sad, stupid story. Elvis was born in one of the poorest towns in Mississippi, a place far, far away, I said. He arrived in the world alongside his twin brother, who died a few minutes later. As he grew up, his mother told him that if he sang to the moon every night, his brother could hear his voice. So he sang and sang. He began to perform in public just as television was taking off. So in a sudden swoosh, he became more famous than anyone had ever before been. Everywhere Elvis went, people would scream until his world became a chamber of screams. He retreated into a cocoon of his own construction where he gloried in his possessions in place of his lost freedom. For his mother, he bought a palace and named it Graceland. I skimmed through the rest, the descent into addiction, the sweating, gurning, stage jammering in Vegas, the death at the age of 42. Whenever my godson, who I'll call Adam, I've changed some details here to avoid identifying him, asked questions about how the story ended, I got him to duet Blue Moon with me instead. You saw me standing alone, he sang in his little voice, without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. One day, Adam looked at me very earnestly and asked, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? 
without really thinking, I agreed. Do you promise? Do you really promise? I said I did. And I never gave it another thought until everything had gone wrong. Ten years later, Adam was lost. He had dropped out of school when he was 15, and he spent literally almost all his waking hours at home alternating blankly between screens. His phone, an infinite scroll of WhatsApp and Facebook messages, and his iPad on which he watched a blur of YouTube and porn. At moments, I could still see in him traces of the joyful little boy who sang Viva Las Vegas, but it was like that person had broken into smaller, disconnected fragments. He struggled to stay with the topic of conversation for more than a few minutes without jerking back to his screen or abruptly switching to another topic. He seemed to be worrying at the speed of Snapchat, somewhere where nothing still or serious could reach him. He was intelligent, decent, kind, but it was like nothing could gain any traction in his mind. During the decade in which Adam had become a man, this fracturing seemed to be happening to some degree to many of us. The sensation of being alive in the early 21st century consisted of the sense that our ability to pay attention, to focus, was cracking and breaking. I could feel it happening to me. I'd buy piles of books and I'd glimpse them guiltily from the corner of my eye as I sent, I told myself, just one more tweet. I still read a lot, but with each year that passed, it, became, it felt more and more like running up a down escalator. I had just turned 40 and wherever my generation gathered, we would lament our lost capacity for concentration, as if it was a friend who had vanished one day at sea and never been seen since. Then one evening, as we lay on a large sofa, each staring at our own ceaselessly shrieking screens, I looked at Adam and felt a low dread. We can't live like this, I said to myself. Adam, I said softly, let's go to Graceland. What? I reminded him of the promise that I had made to him so many years before. He couldn't even remember those blue moon days, nor my pledge to him. But I could see that the idea of breaking this numbing routine ignited something in him. He looked up at me and asked if I was serious. I am, I said, but there's one condition. I'll pay for us to go 4,000 miles. We'll go to Memphis and New Orleans. We'll go all over the South, anywhere you want. But I can't do it if when we get there, all you're going to do is stare at your phone. You have to promise to leave it switched off except at night. We have to return to reality. We have to connect with something that matters to us. He swore he would, and a few weeks later, we lifted off from London Heathrow toward the land of the Delta Blues. When you arrive at the gates of Graceland, there's no longer a human being whose job is to show you around. You're handed an iPad, and you put in little earbuds, and the iPad tells you what to do. Turn left, turn right, walk forward. In each room, the iPad, in the voice of some forgotten actor, tells you about the room you're in, and a photograph of it appears on the screen. So we walked around Graceland alone, staring at the iPad. We were surrounded by Canadians and Koreans and the whole United Nations of blank-faced people looking down, seeing nothing around them. I watched them as they walk, feeling more and more tense. Occasionally, somebody would, try to make, would look away from the iPad, and I felt a flicker of hope, and I'd try to make eye contact with them to shrug, to say, hey, we're the only ones looking around. We're the ones who traveled thousands of miles. The book Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And welcome back. Michael in Portland. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hey, yeah, I was listening to Johan Hari. And uh, to get the 
big social media companies to change their model, I believe that all the information they're selling about us is our private information, and they should have to pay us a portion of their sales back to us. I agree. So one or two percent of what they sell, they can obviously keep track of it. They have all the other data about us. Why not pay it back to us? Yeah, it's one of the solutions that I lay out in uh, The Hidden History of Big Brother. Another one is to go mm -hmm. with a subscription model, which he, he mentioned very quickly, but you know, it didn't go any farther. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the subscription, the subscription model is where um, I pay them $5 a month to be on Facebook, for example. And, uh, you know, just like people pay for newsletters or pay uh, mm -hmm. the New York Times, you know, for a, a subscription. And then, you know, I get to see all my friends and cousins and neighbors and can keep track of what's going on with my family. But uh, Facebook no longer has a need or an incentive to push, uh, you know, crazy right wing wackadoodle stuff in my face about what's going on in the local school board or advertisers mm -hmm. at me. And uh, it could go back to being what it was originally marketed at. I, I, I realize Facebook started out as a way for men at Harvard to rate, you know, potential women, you know, potential right, dates. Yeah. Right? This started out as a rate the girls thing. But it morphed then into a product that was basically, you know, advertising driven. How, how can we get more people to read these ads? What can we give them that they want? Oh, they want to talk to Uncle Ralph. Okay, cool. Then, you know, you want to see Uncle Ralph, you got to see the ad for whatever it is. And then we're going to optimize what the ads are going to be. But you get rid of the ads and all of those other perverse incentives are gone. So, exactly. I, you know, I, I would say just, you know, the advertising model itself is the, the corruption at the core of this. And, and you know, uh, or, or maybe the other way to do it would be to just ban the, the gathering of that information, although that's, that's going to be much more of a challenge. But the European Union is moving in that direction with uh, some of their privacy steps. And some of the manufacturers, I mean, one of the reasons why Mark Zuckerberg's personal fortune lost over, what was it, $30 billion or something last week? <laughs> You know, it yeah. wasn't some big revelation or some scandal at Facebook or anything. It was that Apple updated their operating system in a way that doesn't allow Facebook to get quite as much information about you when you visit their website or when you have your their app on your iPhone. And you know, <laughs> they're, so Apple crippled Facebook's ability to spy on us, and that caused you know Facebook to to lose. What, a billion, hundred billion dollars in market share? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. So, yeah, there's a bunch of possibilities. Yeah. It would be nice to know what they're tracking on you, though, and you could track it that way. It would. It. it would. And Apple will actually give you that information. You can, In fact, I did mm -hmm. this a, a week or so ago. I said, send me all the information you've got on me, and they did. And, I, you know, I was surprised by some of it. I was not surprised by others of it. But Facebook, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't do that, or any of the social media. I mean, we shouldn't just pick on Facebook. This is universal. Yeah. Michael, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. And uh, welcome back. Picking up your phone calls, Laura in Linwood, Washington. Hey, Laura, what's up? Well, I was born before World War II started. I was a child. Mm -hmm. I want to give you a few of my memories I remember that we had, at my school, tunnels dug into the side of the hill that we had raid practices. Wow. There it was no duck. There was to get into a cave. Right. Our food was rationed. My mother, and she would fry potatoes and onions, and we had a garden. 
and it wasn't called a victory garden. It was just a garden that we lived off and she canned and did all that. We had dark shades on our windows. My father could not drive at night with headlights. My parents went to some place where they were up high. On a, wasn't on a hill. It was on a, a thing they had to climb up, and they watched for airplanes. And they had a book that showed the different bodies of the airplanes, what they looked like wow. in the sky. Oh, so they were so spotters. We you must have lived on the west coast, looking we for lived the Japanese in Oregon. Spot. Yeah. Oh, okay. In yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. My dad repaired our shoes. He had some tools, and he would put new soles on our shoes. Mm -hmm. It just goes on and on. We were very aware. We were patriotic as hell. Yeah. And we were proud to be Americans. And we bought savings bonds, and we got stamps. The kids bought stamps, and we put them in a book. And when we had enough books, we could get a savings bond. And there was no new clothes. You made do with what you had. You know, everything was for the war effort. Mm -hmm. I remember something about mother would save her excess fat because lard was used to make some kind of weapon. You know, yeah. it just every, I always, you know, that was our whole thing about the war. Yeah, and that's and I lost. And that's my point, uh, Laura. I'm sorry, we're out of time. But my point was that we have in this generation. I mean, you're you're fortunate to be old enough to remember that. I know my mother-in-law, who's 95, remembers it, too, and my, my mother used to tell me stories like this. But most Americans have no recollection. This is not what happened during Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan, and it could get tough. Laura, thank you so much. That was brilliant. Thank you. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. There are so many ways to get involved. Find one. Find one where you're really passionate and get involved. It, it feels good, right? It's therapeutic. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.